Section 15 of Starlight Ranch and Other Stories of Army Life on the Frontier by Charles King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story 3 From the Point to the Plains. Chapter 6 The Last Dance. The blithest day of all the year has come. The graduating ball takes place tonight. The point is thronged with joyous visitors, and yet over all there hovers a shadow. In the midst of all this gaiety and congratulation there hides a core of sorrow. Voices lower and soft eyes turn in sympathy when certain sad faces are seen. There is one subject on which the cadets simply refuse to talk, and there are two of the graduating class who do not appear at the hotel at all. One is Mr. McKay whose absence is alleged to be because of confinements he has to serve. The other is Philip Stanley, still in close arrest, and the latter has cancelled his engagement for the ball. There had been a few days in which Miss McKay, forgetting or having obtained absolution for her unguarded remarks on the promenade deck of the steamer, had begun to be seen a great deal with Miss Stanley. She had even blushingly shaken hands with big Lieutenant Lee, whose kind brown eyes were full of fun and playfulness whenever he greeted her. But it was noticed that something, all of a sudden, had occurred to mar the growing intimacy. Then that the once blithe little lady was looking white and sorrowful, that she avoided Miss Stanley for two whole days, and that her blue eyes watched wistfully for someone who did not come. Mr. Stanley, no doubt, was the diagnosis of the case by Miss Mischief and others. Then, like a thunderclap, came the order for Phil Stanley's arrest, and then there were other sad faces. Miriam Stanley's dark eyes were not only troubled, but down in their depths was a gleam of suppressed indignation that people knew not how to explain. Colonel Stanley, to whom everyone had been drawn from the first, now appeared very stern and grave. The joy had vanished from his face. Mrs. McKay was flitting about the parlors, tearfully thankful that it wasn't her boy. Nanny had grown whiter still, and very absent and silent. Mr. Lee did not come at all. Then there was startling news. An outbreak, long smoldering, had just occurred at the great reservation of the spirit wolf. The agent and some of his men had been massacred, their women carried away into a captivity whose horrors beggar all description, and two troops, hardly six-score men, of Colonel Stanley's regiment were already in pursuit. Leaving his daughter to the care of an old friend at Craney's, and after a brief interview with his boy at barracks, the old soldier, who had come eastward with such glad anticipation, turned promptly back to the field of duty. He had taken the first train, and was already beyond the Missouri. Almost immediately after the Colonel's departure, Mr. Lee had come to the hotel, and was seen to have a brief but earnest talk with Miss Stanley on the North Piazza, a talk from which she had gone direct to her room and did not reappear for hours, while he, who usually had a genial, kindly word for everyone, had turned abruptly down the north steps as though to avoid the crowded halls and piazzas, and so returned to the barracks. 
But now, this lovely June morning, the news from the far west is still more direful. Hundreds of savages have taken the warpath, and murder is the burden of every tale from around their reservation. But this is the day of last parade, and the graduating ball, and people cannot afford time to think of such gruesome matter. All the same, they note that Mr. Lee comes no more to the hotel, and a rumor is in circulation that he has begged to be relieved from duty at the point and ordered to join his troop now in the field against hostile Indians. Nanny McKay is looking like a pathetic shadow of her former self as she comes downstairs to fulfill an engagement with a cadet admirer. She neglects no duty of the kind towards Willie's friend and hers, but is drooping and listless. Uncle Jack is worried about her. So, too, is Mama, though the latter is so wrapped up in the graduation of her boy that she has little time to think of pallid cheeks and mournful eyes. It is all arranged that they are to sail for Europe the first of July, and the sea air, the voyage across, the new sights and associations on the other side will bring her around again, says that observant avuncular hopefully. He is compelled to be at his office in the city much of the time, but comes up this day as a matter of course, and has a brief chat with his graceless nephew at the guard-house. Billy's utter lack of spirits sets Uncle Jack to thinking. The boy says he can tell him nothing just now, and Uncle Jack feels well assured that he has a good deal to tell. He goes in search of Lieutenant Lee, for whom he has conceived a great fancy, but the big lieutenant has gone to the city on business. In the crowded hall at the hotel he meets Miriam Stanley, and her face gives him another pound of worry to carry. "'You are going to the ball, though?' he hears a lady say to her, and Miriam shakes her head. "'Ball, indeed! Or last parade, either!' She knows she cannot bear to see the class march to the front, and her brother not there. She cannot bear the thought of even looking on at the ball, if Philip is to be debarred from attending. Her thoughts have been very bitter for a few days past. Her father's intense but silent distress and regret, Philip's certain detention after the graduation of his class, his probable court-martial and loss of rank, the knowledge that he had incurred it all to save McKay, and everybody by this time felt that it must be Billy McKay, though no one could prove it, all have conspired to make her very unhappy and very unjust to Mr. Lee. Philip has told her that Mr. Lee had no alternative in reporting to the Commandant his discovery down the road, but she had believed herself of sufficient value in that officer's brown eyes to induce him to at least postpone any mention of that piece of accidental knowledge, and though in her heart of hearts she knows she respects him the more because she could not prevail against his sense of duty, she is stung to the quick, and womanlike has made him feel it. It must be in sympathy with her sorrows that, late in this afternoon, the heavens open and pour their floods upon the plain. Hundreds of people are bemoaning the fact that now there can be no graduating parade. Down in barracks, the members of the class are busily packing trunks, trying on civilian garb, and rushing about in much excitement.
In more senses than one, Phil Stanley's room is a centre of gravity. The commandant, at ten o'clock, had sent for him and given him final opportunity to state whose place he occupied during the inspection of that now memorable night, and he had respectfully but firmly declined. There was then no alternative but the withdrawal of his diploma and his detention at the point to await the action of the Secretary of War upon the charges preferred against him. The class, of course, knew by this time that McKay was the man whom he had saved, for after one day of torment and indecision, that hapless youth had called in half a dozen of his comrades and made a clean breast of it. It was then his deliberate intention to go to the commandant and beg for Stanley's release and to offer himself as the culprit. But Stanley had thought the problem out and gravely interposed. It could really do no practical good to him, and would only result in disaster to McKay. No one could have anticipated the luckless chain of circumstances that had led to his own arrest, but now he must face the consequences. After long consultation, the young counsellors had decided on the plan. There is only one thing for us to do, keep the matter quiet. There is only one thing for Billy to do, keep a stiff upper lip, graduate with the class, then go to Washington with Uncle Jack, and bestir their friends in Congress, not just then assembled, but always available. There was never yet a time when a genuine pull from Senate and House did not triumph over the principles of military discipline. A miserable man is Billy. For a week he has moped in barracks, forbidden by Stanley and his advisers to admit anything, yet universally suspected of being the cause of all the trouble. He, too, wishes to cancel his engagements for the graduating ball, and thinks something ought to be done to those young idiots of yearlings who set off the torpedo. Nothing could have gone wrong but for them, says he, but the wise heads of the class promptly snub him into silence. You've simply got to do what we say in this matter, Billy. You've done enough mischief already. And so it results that the message he sends by Uncle Jack is, Tell Mother and Nan I'll meet them at the hop. My confinements end at eight o'clock, but there's no use in my going to the hotel and tramping through the mud. The truth is, he cannot bear to meet Miriam Stanley, and twould be just his luck. One year ago, no happier, bonnier, brighter face could have been seen at the point than that of Nanny McKay. Tonight, in all the throng of fair women and lovely girls, gathered with their soldier escort in the great mess-hall, there is none so sad. She tries hard to be chatty and smiling, but is too frank and honest a little soul to have much success. The dances that Phil Stanley had engaged months and months ago are accredited now to other names, and blissful young fellows in grey and gold come successively to claim them. But deep down in her heart she remembers the number of each. It was he who was to have been her escort. It was he who made out her card and gave it to her only a day or two before that fatal interview. It was he who was to have had the last waltz, the very last, that he would dance in the old cadet gray, and though new names have been substituted for his in other cases, 
This waltz she meant to keep. Well knowing that there would be many to beg for it, she has written Willie's name for Stanley, and duly warned him of the fact. Then, when it comes, she means to escape to the dressing-room, for she is promptly told that her brother is engaged to Miss Waring for that very waltz. Light as are her feet, she never yet has danced with so heavy a heart. The rain still pours, driving everybody within doors. The heat is intense, the hall is crowded, and it frequently happens that partners cannot find her until near the end of their number on that dainty card. But every one has something to say about Phil Stanley and the universal regret at his absence. It is getting to be more than she can bear, this prolonged striving to respond with proper appreciation and sympathy, yet not say too much, not betray the secret that is now burning, throbbing in her girlish heart. He does not dream it, but there, hidden beneath the soft lace upon her snowy neck, lies that knot of ribbon blue which she so laughingly had given him at his urging, the last day of her visit the previous year the knot which he had so loyally treasured and then so sadly returned a trifling senseless thing to make such an ado about but these hearts are young and ardent and this romance of his has many a counterpart the memory of which may bring to war-worn grizzled heads to-day a blush almost of shame and would surely bring to many an old and sometimes aching heart a sigh hoping against hope poor nanny has thought it just possible that at the last moment the authorities would relent and he be allowed to attend if so if so angry and justly angered though he might be cut to the heart though he expressed himself has she not here the means to call him back to bid him come and know how contrite she is hour after hour she glances at the broad archway at the east yearning to see his dark handsome face among the newcomers all in vain time and again she encounters sally waring brilliant bewitching in the most ravishing of toilettes and always with half a dozen men about her twice she notices will among them with a face gloomy and rebellious and hardly knowing why she almost hates her at last comes the waltz that was to have been Philip's, the waltz she has saved for his sake, though he cannot claim it. Mr. Pennock, who has danced the previous galop with her, sees the leader raise his baton, bethinks him of his next partner, and leaves her at the open window, close to the dressing-room door. There she can have a breath of fresh air, and hiding behind the broad backs of several bulky officers and civilians listen undisturbed to the music she longed to enjoy with him here to her surprise will suddenly joins her i thought you were engaged to miss waring for this she says i was he answers savagely but i'm well out of it i resigned in favor of a big sit who's worth only twenty thousand a year nan and she has been engaged to him all this time and never let me know until to-night willie she gasps oh i'm so glad sorry i mean i never did like her 
I did, Nan, more's the pity. I'm not the first she's made a fool of, and he turns away, hiding the chagrin in his young face. They are practically alone in this sheltering nook. Crowds are around them, but looking the other way. The rain is dripping from the trees without and pattering on the stone flags. McKay leans out into the night, and the sister's loving heart yearns over him in his trouble. Willie, she says, laying the little white-gloved hand on his arm, it's hard to bear, but she isn't worthy any man's love. Twice I've heard in the last two days that she makes a boast of it, that twas to see her that someone risked his commission, and so kept Mr. Stanley from being here to-night. Willie, do you know who it was? Don't you think he ought to have come forward like a gentleman days ago, and told the truth? Will, what is it? Don't look so. Speak to me, Willie. Your little Nan. Was there ever a time, dear, when my whole heart wasn't open to you in love and sympathy? And now, just at this minute, the music begins again. Soft, sweet, yet with such a strain of pathos and of sadness running through every chord. It is the loveliest of all the waltzes played in his first-class camp, the one of all others he most loved to hear. Her heart almost bursts now to think of him in his lonely room, beyond hearing of the melody that is so dear to him, that is now so passionately dear to her, love's sigh. Doubtless Philip had asked the leader days ago to play it here and at no other time. It is more than enough to start the tears long welling in her eyes. For an instant it turns her from thought of Willie's own heartache. Will, she whispers desperately, this was to have been Philip Stanley's waltz, and I want you to take something to him for me. He turns back to her again, his hands clenched, his teeth set, still thinking only of his own bitter humiliation, of how that girl has fooled and jilted him, of how, for her sake, he had brought all this trouble on his staunchest friend. "'Phil Stanley!' he exclaims. "'By heaven! It makes me nearly mad to think of it, and all for her sake, all through me. Oh, Nan, Nan, I must tell you, it was for me, to save me, that—Willie!' and there was almost horror in her wide blue eyes. "'Willie!' she gasps. "'Oh, don't, don't tell me that. Oh, it isn't true. Not you. Not you, Willie. Not my brother. Oh, quick, tell me!' Startled, alarmed, he seizes her hand. "'Little sister, what, what has happened? What is—' But there is no time for more words. The week of misery, the piteous strain of the long evening, the sweet, sad, wailing melody, his favorite waltz, the sudden, stunning revelation that it was for Willie's sake that he, her hero, was now to suffer, he whose heart she had trampled on and crushed. It is all more than mortal girl can bear. With the beautiful strains moaning, whirling, ringing, surging through her brain, she is borne dizzily away into darkness and oblivion. There follows a week in which sadder faces yet are seen about the old hotel. The routine of the academy goes on undisturbed. 
The graduating class has taken its farewell of the gray walls and gone upon its way. New faces, new voices are those in the line of officers at parade. The corps has pitched its white tents under the trees beyond the grassy parapet of Fort Clinton, and, with the graduates and furlough men gone, its ranks look pitifully thinned. The throng of visitors has vanished, the halls and piazzas at Craney's are well-nigh deserted, but among the few who linger there is not one who has not loving inquiry for the young life that for a brief while has fluttered so near the grave. Brain fever, said the doctors to Uncle Jack, and a new anxiety was lined in his kindly face as he and Will McKay sped on their mission to the capital. They had to go, though little Nan lay sore-stricken at the point. But youth and elasticity triumph. The danger is past. She lies now, very white and still, listening to the sweet strains of the band trooping down the line this soft June evening. Her mother, worn with watching, is resting on the lounge. It is Miriam Stanley who hovers at the bedside. Presently the bugles peel the retreat, the sunset gun booms across the plain, the ringing voice of the young adjutant comes floating on the southerly breeze, and as she listens Nanny follows every detail of the well-known ceremony, wondering how it could go on day after day with no Mr. Pennock to read the orders, with no Big Burton to thunder his commands to the first company, with no Philip Stanley to march the colors to their place on the line. Where is he? is the question in the sweet blue eyes that so wistfully seek his sister's face. But she answers not. One by one the first sergeants made their reports, and now that ringing voice again, reading the orders of the day. How clear it sounds, how hushed and still the listening point. Headquarters of the Army, she hears, Washington, June 15th, 1870. Special Orders Number Blank. First, upon his own application, First Lieutenant George Romney Lee, Umph Cavalry, is hereby relieved from duty at the U.S. Military Academy, and will join his troop now in the field against hostile Indians. Second, upon the recommendation of the Superintendent, U.S. Military Academy, the charges preferred against Cadet Captain Philip S. Stanley are withdrawn. Cadet Stanley will be considered as graduated with his class on the twelfth instant, will be released from arrest, and authorized to avail himself of the leave of absence granted his class. Nanny starts from her pillow, clasping in her thin white fingers the soft hand that would have restrained her. Miriam, she cries then will he go the dark proud face bends down to her clasping arms encircle the little white form and miriam stanley's very heart wails forth in answer oh nanny he is almost there by this time both of them they left to join the regiment three days ago their orders came by telegraph another week and uncle jack is again with them the doctors agree that the ocean voyage is now not only advisable, but necessary. They are to move their little patient to the city and board their steamer in a day or two. 
Will has come to them, full of disgust that he has been assigned to the artillery, and filling his mother's heart with dismay because he is begging for a transfer to the cavalry, to the th regiment, of all others, now plunged in the whirl of an Indian war. Every day the papers come freighted with rumors of fiercer fighting, but little that is reliable can be heard from Sabre Stanley and his column. They are far beyond telegraphic communication, hemmed in by hostiles on every side. Uncle Jack is an early riser. Going down for his paper before breakfast, he is met at the foot of the stairs by a friend who points to the headlines of the Herald with the simple remark, Isn't this hard? It is brief enough, God knows. A courier, just in from Colonel Stanley's camp, brings the startling news that Lieutenant Philip Stanley, umpth cavalry, with two scouts and a small escort who left here Sunday to push through to the Spirit Wolf, were ambushed by the Indians in Black Canyon. Their bodies, scalped and mutilated, were found Wednesday night. Where, then, was Romney Lee? End of section 15